Good morning. The scripture reading for today is Exodus 19, verses 1 through 25. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After that, they set out from Rephidim and entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now you will obey me fully and keep my covenant. And out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and said before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people who responded together we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down from Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned and shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning in a thick cloud over the mountain in a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. At the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, 
The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set up a holy place. And the Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you, but the priest and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Buenos días. La lectura es del libro de Éxodos, capítulo 19, versos 1 a 25. Los israelitas llegaron al desierto de Sinai a los tres meses de haber salido de Egipto. Después de partir de Refidín, se internaron en el desierto de Sinai, y ahí, en el desierto, acamparon frente al monte, al cual subió Moisés para encontrarse con Dios, y desde ahí lo llamó el Señor y le dijo, «Anúnciale esto al pueblo de Jacob». Declárale esto al pueblo de Israel. Ustedes son testigos de, de lo que hice con Egipto, de lo que les he traído hacia mí como las alas de, de águila. Si ahora ustedes me son del todo obedientes y cumplen mi pacto, serán mi propiedad exclusiva entre todas las naciones. Aunque toda la tierra me pertenece, ustedes serán para mí un reino de sacerdotes y una nación santa. Comunícales todo esto a los israelitas. Moisés volvió y convocó a los ancianos del pueblo para exponerles todas estas palabras que el Señor le había ordenado comunicarles. Y todo el pueblo respondió a una sola voz. Cumpliremos con todo lo que el Señor nos ha ordenado. Así que Moisés le llevó al Señor la respuesta del pueblo. Y el Señor le dijo... Voy a presentarme ante ti en medio de una densa nube, para que el pueblo me oiga contigo y así tenga siempre confianza en ti. Moisés refirió al Señor lo que el pueblo le había dicho, y el Señor le dijo, Ve y consagra, consagra al pueblo hoy y mañana. Diles que laven todas sus ropas y que se preparen para el tercer día, porque en ese mismo día yo descenderé sobre el monte Sinai, a la vista de todo el pueblo. Pon un cerco alrededor del monte para que el pueblo no pase. Diles que no suban al monte y que ni siquiera pongan un pie en él, pues cualquiera que lo toque será condenado a la muerte. Sea hombre o animal, no quedará con vida. Quien se atreva a tocarlo morirá a pedrazas o flechazos. Solo podrán subir al monte cuando se oiga el toque largo de la trompeta. En cuanto Moisés bajó al monte, consagró al pueblo. Ellos, por su parte, lavaron sus ropas. Luego Moisés les dijo, prepárense para el tercer día y absténganse de relaciones sexuales. En la madrugada del tercer día hubo truenos y relámpagos y una densa nube se posó sobre el monte. Un toque muy fuerte el trompeta puso a temblar a todos los que estaban en el campamento. Entonces Moisés sacó el campamento del campamento al pueblo para que fuera a su encuentro con Dios y ellos se detuvieron al pie del monte Sinai. El monte estaba cubierto de humo porque el Señor había descendido sobre él en medio de fuego. Era tanto el humo que salía del monte que parecía un horno. Todo el monte se sacudía violentamente y el sonido de la trompeta era cada vez más fuerte. Entonces habló Moisés y el Dios, y Dios le respondió en el trueno. 
El Señor descendió a la cumbre del monte Sinai y desde ahí llamó a Moisés para que subiera. Cuando Moisés llegó a la cumbre, el Señor le dijo, Baja y advierta al pueblo que no intenten ir más allá del cerco para verme. No sea que muchos de ellos pierdan la vida. Hasta los sacerdotes que se acerquen a mí deben consagrarse. De lo contrario, yo arrometeré contra ellos. Moisés le dijo al Señor, el pueblo no puede subir al monte, el, al monte Sinai, pues tú mismo nos has advertido. Pon un cerco alrededor del monte y conságramelo. El Señor le respondió, baja y dile a Aarón que suba contigo. Pero ni los sacerdotes ni el pueblo deben intentar subir a donde estoy yo. Pues de lo contrario, yo arremeteré contra ellos. Moisés bajó y repitió lo mismo al pueblo. Palabra del Señor. Thank you so much. Miss Linda, Joanna, it's good to read God's word and just to hear the story again and again. Praise God. Let's bow our heads and pray together as we consider this passage, this story. Let's pray. God, now we lift up our eyes to the hills, to you, where our help comes from. Help us now in this time uh, to hear your word, to hear your voice even as the Israelites heard your voice that day. Help us to hear from you, to tremble before your love, your kindness, your grace, and to be changed by you. So come now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In 1968, in Australia, a toddler by the name of Kathy Rethman went missing. She'd been abducted. Three days later, the little girl was found, thankfully unharmed, but 17 miles from home, discovered by three boys who just happened to be skipping out from school, who happened upon her. I recently saw a video clip that was recorded just last month of a most special reunion over Zoom between Kathy and one of these now grown-up boys. 54 years later, Kathy, now in her mid-50s, had the chance to meet one of those three boys who found her. Mark Byrne was his name. And upon being reintroduced, the two immediately, understandably, just burst into tears, choked up as Kathy stammered out a few words. I can't believe it. This is a dream. Thank you is not enough. I love you. You're always going to be my hero. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. At this point in the narrative of Exodus, as we've been reading along, it was two months since the Israelites, like Kathy, had been rescued from bondage. And now they were about to be reunited at a mountain with their rescuer, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They wouldn't be meeting him for the first time. He hadn't ever left them, of course, even during those 400 years in Egypt. 
but they didn't know him very well, they needed to get reacquainted. In other words, their covenant relationship had to be renewed. So it's curious to observe in today's passage from Exodus chapter 19, what was it that God would reveal to them about himself? What would he say? What would he do? The Israelites had witnessed his saving power at the Red Sea and the plagues, their deliverance. They saw and experienced his compassion, his resolve to keep his centuries-old promises. But what of his character, his nature, would he reveal to them on this day in the desert of Sinai at this reunion? And here's the answer. That day, Israel saw God manifest as fire, smoke, clouds, thunder. It actually looked something like a volcano on a really bad day. And if you remember the old movie series from the Lord of the Rings, this really sounded like something taken straight out of Mordor. That day, Israel saw with their eyes and heard with their ears and felt it in their gut what the Bible teaches us today to know by faith, and that is that God is holy. Five times, different forms of the Hebrew word for holy is used in this chapter, God is holy. But holy, what does that mean? Typically, I think we associate that word with religious things, uh, holy rituals, holy scriptures, or maybe we associate it with moral purity. Uh, we hear that in that well-known expression, holier than thou, moral purity. Recently, I actually did Google the word holy just to see what came up, and interestingly, along with different dictionary references, one of the first links that got pulled up was Justin Bieber's song by the same name, Holy. It's a love song, and I don't know if we have any believers out there, right? Maybe you know the lyrics, but the words in the chorus go, the way you hold me, hold me, hold me, hold me, hold me, hold me, feels so holy, 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 holy. Maybe a little bit of a different meaning, but maybe not, because it actually reflects the sense of holy as sacred, even otherworldly, doesn't it? In the Bible, holy means set apart. Set apart. It's the opposite of ordinary or common. Holy things or persons are really different, unique, special, even one of a kind. That's holy. In my home, like many other homes, our house is just filled with crayons and markers and colored pencils of all kinds. Our kids love to draw. And so reds and yellows and greens and blues are stored in cabinets that they can just access easily, use for themselves, and then, of course, leave strewn all over the tables everywhere, even the floors. 
But if you were to go downstairs, away from the common areas, if you were to go downstairs into the office where their mom works as a designer, there you would find an array of professional grade markers and colored pencils. And these are set apart for one person's use. Uh, they have intimidating names of colors like lime peel and dark umber and pale vermilion. And they're placed on a, a high shelf in a corner of the room. Not because of the kids. I'm pretty sure to keep them safe from me. Out of my reach. If you squint, you can almost see there in the marker jar and the colored pencils case there. You could, you, you could, I think you can almost see an invisible warning sign that reads, whoever touches these would be put to death. See, these pencils are different from the common pencils, the Crayola kind, right? They are set apart from the rest. They're special and set apart for special use. They are holy. And it's in this sense that the Bible uses the word in reference to God. When the Bible tells us, when God tells us, that he is holy, he's telling us that he's radically different, that he's unique, that he's like nothing you've ever seen before. He's a cut above the rest. And so, of course, you can see how the idea of moral purity is actually related. God is morally distinct from us in his perfection. But you can also hear that deeper meaning, that fuller sense of the uniqueness, the, the specialness of God in his holiness. As Moses declared earlier in Exodus chapter 8, there is no one like the Lord our God. That's a declaration of his holiness. Or as Isaiah chapter 40 verse 25 later says, to whom will you compare me, says God, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. There's no one like our God. That's what the Israelites encountered that day. That's what God chose most to reveal about himself, his holiness. And he illustrated it before their very eyes, before their trembling hands, and before their quivering stomachs with outward signs, visible sensory symbols, just to make sure they understood the lesson. You see, because he could have just told them, I'm holy. You know, I'm kind of different from you. Hey, let me tell you the dictionary definition of holy now. Holy means set apart. All the stuff I just did. But he didn't do that. What did he do instead? Fire. <laughs> Thunder. A mountain. Smoke. A, a, a trumpet sound. And, and did you catch that ram's horn trumpet? We, we don't know who was blowing that. Almost being blown from heaven, it seemed. God was teaching them, communicating them. And what was it that we learned? What was it that they were learning that day? Two things. We'll look through this quickly. Number one, the majesty of his holiness. And secondly, the beauty of his holiness. 
The majesty of God's holiness. Notice that God met them on a mountain. I mean, you have to again remind yourself again and again that God has been very deliberate about these things. He could have met them by the sea. He could have met them in an open field. He could have met them in a canyon. All different ways in which he could have met him. He chose a mountain. Why? So they would have to look up and see him high and lifted up. The exalted God. The one who was from heaven. He was indeed a king. And the mountain almost served as a, an almost throne. Or maybe even a footstool. So big is he. He met them through fire. Uh, a fire that seemed to come out of nowhere. That just like the burning bush before Moses, several chapters before, it never seemed to burn out. It was self-generating, just like this God in his life is self-generating, self-existent, dependent upon no one. The beginning and the end of life himself, God, the eternal one. He, 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 he's teaching them to come to him, to the base of this mountain, through a ritual. He literally sets this mountain apart, creates a perimeter, and says, no one can come too close. Don't touch it or you'll be executed. Again, an object lesson showing that I'm different from you, and you can come this far and no farther. He made sure that they could just not see it, but also feel it. The whole mountain, we're told in verse 18, trembled violently. The people are asked to consecrate themselves. That actually means set apart as holy. By washing their clothes, he's teaching them that they are in their souls. We are in our souls filthy sinful people. And there's no way to come to this God except if we are made clean. How are we possibly going to be made clean? We're just washing our bodies. This is an exterior ceremony. What might be the reality? They might have cried out that day. God would answer that, wouldn't he? Though not yet. There was a thick cloud over the mountain. They could barely even see what was going on. He was teaching them that he in his fullness would always be veiled from human eyes. And it was just a dreadful sight, wasn't it? We're told the Lord descended on it in fire. Verse 18, the whole mountain was covered in, in smoke. You see, because like fire, God is pure. We're told in Deuteronomy 32, his works are perfect and all his ways are just a faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. And so therefore, just like fire, he burns against sin and unrighteousness. Yes, a God of love, but also a God of judgment, a wrathful God in the face of injustice and evil. A God who is one who draws near and yet who is also inapproachable by sinful human beings. There's, there's a distance between him and the people that he's enforced. God is teaching them about his majesty, about his greatness. He already told them earlier his name, his personal name, I am who I am self-existent and eternal, dependent on no one but himself, not contingent, transcendent, deeply invested in his creation, yet set apart from it all. And therefore, he never changes. 
He can't be improved upon because you can't improve upon that which is perfect. And just as surely as that fire blazes on and on, here's a God that never expires. Why? Because his grace, his majesty never runs out. This is the king that they came upon. And the people trembled. They trembled. They barely knew what to do with themselves. In fact, they were so fearful, they said, Moses, we don't want to get any closer. You go. And in fact, that's an important point to notice. So great and grand and majestic is this God. He was teaching them about his holiness also by saying, there will be one person who will actually be the conduit between you and me. A mediator named, what? Moses. Right? We're not going to just deal face to face. He's going to be sort of the negotiator. And you see this again and again in this story. Uh, Moses going up the mountain, coming down the mountain. Uh, Moses coming to God and then going back to the people. He's going to the people saying, this is what God said. He comes to God, he says, this is what the people said. He's the one that stands in the gap between God and the people. He's the mediator who has exclusive privileged access to God and yet who also draws near to God's people. Here we have a small glimpse of the coming Moses, the new Moses, whose name would be Jesus, of course. The one who would in himself stand between God and humanity, his people, who would be fully God and yet also fully man, who would communicate between the two and even bring the mercy of God to people. It would be through the new Moses, Jesus, alone, through which we can come to God and know God and love God and worship God. Jesus would be the new mediator. That would be the mercy that the holy God of the universe would supply. But you recognize the need for the mediator itself is predicated on the holiness of God. You can't just waltz in into the presence of a king. You need someone who would be described one day in temple terms. You see, because in the ancient temple, later on, after Moses and company had created it and built it and such, there was a way in which you were called to fellowship with God, where priests would bring sacrifices into a, a tent or a, a middle area of the building where you would come in, and that was called the holy place. But that's where God's presence was said to be. But there was an even more intimate space, the inner sanctum, the deepest place where God was said to be present. That was called the most holy place. That's where God truly lived. And there was a curtain that separated the priests from the very presence of God. And then we're told in the Gospel of Matthew that when Christ died on the cross, sacrificing himself out of love for sinners, paying the price for our sins by his grace, at that very moment, the curtain in the temple tore into the mediator himself was ripped apart in order to make a way for us to come into the very presence of this holy God. God who gave us access into the most holy place. God the Son, Christ in his broken body. Behold the majesty of his holiness. But behold also the beauty of his holiness. 
We've already begun to talk about this, the way in which his holiness actually is the very attribute of God that makes him committed to being a God of love and forgiveness and kindness. You see, because I don't know about you, but when I hear moral perfection or hear about the sinlessness of God or any other being, I tend to think of something cold or distant, a quality that's admirable but not actually attractive. But that's only because I think I have it all wrong in my heart. You see, because if God is holy, perfect in all of his being, that means when he loves, he's incapable of doing anything out of selfishness. If God is holy and he promises to forgive your sins, then out of that holy forgiveness, it means he will forgive you and he's incapable of changing his mind. If God is holy, and when he says that he is committed by his covenant to do you good, then it means that everything he ever does, because of his holiness, his holy consistency, will always be for your good, even when it hurts. It means when he does acts of justice, precisely because he is a holy God of justice, he can never be manipulated. When he says he's patient, it means he never lets any ounce of impatience leak into his heart like it does so often mine. When God made your body, when he made your personality, because he is a holy creator, we can be guaranteed that he was incapable of making a mistake when he formed you. Do you see the beauty of a God who's holy like this? A God of perfection, a God of wonder, a God of who's incapable of doing his people wrong. This is a beautiful thing. And I've got to tell you, it was really Jackie Hill Perry, a wonderful sister and author who wrote a, a great book on this subject called Holier Than Thou, who really tipped me off this last week to this idea of recognizing the beauty of God's holiness. We must not miss it. God's holiness does not mean that he's standing off to the side like sort of a goody two-shoes, know-it-all, flaunt-it-all kind of being. It's precisely what makes him the most beautiful, attractive savior that our human minds could possibly get our minds and hearts around. As Jackie says in her book, holiness is what makes real love possible. Without it, love is purely sentimental, easily misplaced, unconditionally conditional, but God's love for you is a holy love. Rightly understood, God's holiness is something that should melt our hearts and draw us near to him. And in fact, that's what we see in this passage, isn't it? God is not just the God of the fire. He's a God who descends. Who, who comes near, who lowers himself. It's almost an early picture of what Christ himself would do, descending from heaven in order to draw near to helpless people. We're told in verse 20, the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai. In verse 19, the voice of God answered Moses. He's responsive, even to sinful people. 
In verse 9, we're told, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud. Here's a God who draws near. And in verse 5, we're told that he refers to his covenant. That's his promise relationship. His commitment to his people. You see, it's not just fire and thunder and trembling that's revealed here. It's his holy love, his holy covenant, his holy commitment to weak people like you and me. And so we see in verse 4, him reminding the Israelites, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. And he describes how I carried you on eagle's wings and, and brought you to myself. I mean, what an image, maybe something you can carry with you this week, a picture of a mother eagle who cares for her helpless little eaglets. And they say that these baby eagles sometimes need to stay in that big nest in that high altitude for up to a hundred days, a long time, that they need to be nurtured and cared for. And the mother one day carries her young ones on her wings. They're helpless, they're vulnerable, and it's just like God carries his vulnerable people, even you and me. Behold the love of God. And we're told in verse 5, again, my covenant, this is what Dr. Phil Riken refers to as his binding love commitment to his people. God is not just flippantly and spontaneously deciding to do good to people. He has bought it with blood. He, he has guaranteed with his own flesh that he'll keep his promise, that he'll serve and save, that he will be their God and they will be his people. And then he says, out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. This is an idea that God repeats again and again in Deuteronomy 7 and 14 and 26 and Psalm 135. You are my treasured possession, he says. Listen, you are God's treasure. The Hebrew word there actually indicates royal property. It's sort of this picture of a king with a storehouse of treasures, all kinds of valuable and beloved things. And right in the middle of it all is us, you. That which he picks up and esteems as his most prized possession. And he's very clear. Why? Because... We're the most gifted because we're the most impressive, the most powerful, the most... No. Deuteronomy 7, God says, you're my treasured possession. Why? The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all people, but it was because the Lord loved you. Just because he loved you. Not because of what you did for him, but just because he loved you. Not because of how impressed he was out of your usefulness, your giftedness. It was just because he loved you. Isn't this good news, friends? You are precious to God. And he loves you with a special love, which is to say a holy love. Do you see the beauty of his holiness, this God who has radically set himself apart from us, and yet he's not unreachably or unknowably separate from us. He's drawn near to us in Christ. 
Will you see even this week the majesty of his holiness and the beauty of his holiness? And in closing, let me just offer you a few ways in which I think we can do that. Number one, I think this passage and this portrait of God's holiness invites us to approach God with reverence and with awe. To approach God with reverence and awe. Listen to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. This is how the New Testament reflects upon this very chapter in Exodus chapter 19. It says this in light of Jesus. You have not now come to a mountain that cannot be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be sown to death. That sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. You've come to the God of, of mercy who took the thunder upon himself as Christ hung upon the cross, who assumed on his own head that death penalty that should have been meted out upon the head of every sinner standing there around that mountain. Jesus, who died in our place, the writer of the Hebrew says, now you've come to a different mountain. It's a mountain of mercy, a mountain of love, a mountain of salvation, not one of mere fear and trembling. But listen, he also says this, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Which means what? Because Jesus is forgiving, so we just kind of like waltz into God's presence. Uh, so then we're just sort of sloppy about the way in which we forget that God still is that same God He's just made a way for us to know him through the mediator Christ. But he's no less today a consuming fire. And so we come to him not with a slavish fear where you feel like he's going to kill you any minute. No, not that kind of fear. But even in the light of Christ, it still is a trembling awe, a reverence before his holiness, not a terror that makes you run away from God, but a, a bended knee worshipfulness that makes you want to draw closer to him because of his love. Uh, friends, intimacy with Christ should not mean flippancy before the face of God. What would it look like for you to maybe reclaim a little bit of that awe, even trembling? Here's a thought. I wonder if even the posture with which we approach God in prayer and worship is something we should pay more attention to. Maybe this week some of you need to actually pray on your knees. 
No, or maybe if you're reading the Bible, maybe you got to make sure that you're actually sitting up in your chair and not just reclined on your back. Not because that's how you earn points with God. You know, it's not about that. But because our bodies train our hearts. They always do. And maybe there's something about reverence before God that can be expressed even in our physical posture. Awe before God. And let's be clear, our culture does not like or tend to this part of God's character. We like our God to be sort of familiar. So much so that we assume he's like us. Not holy, not holy, just like me. Which is why we find it so stunning, even offensive, for us to find attributes of God that we see in the Bible that we think he shouldn't have. He shouldn't be like that. How dare he? We almost expect God merely to be a reflection of ourselves. But look, if God is always exactly how you expect him to be, he really is not the real God of the Bible. He really is just a reflection of yourself, of you looking in the mirror. And that God is not a holy God, different, set apart, and that God then has no power to save. No power to love you in all your unloveliness. No power to forgive you in all your failures and your sin. But the God of the Bible is a God of grace. He is a God of holiness. Secondly, let me put before you the idea of trust. Trusting in this God of holiness. Let me put before you again the words of Jackie Hill Perry, which is just so powerfully compelling. This is what she says. Because God is holy, all that he says is true, and all that he does is good. God's words and works can be trusted because it is impossible for God to sin against you. If he could, he wouldn't be God. In his perfection, all he will ever be is good to us, good for us. And here's what she says. You got to let these words ring in your hearts. If God can't sin, then he can't sin against you. If he can't sin against you, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? If he's holy, he will never do you wrong. He will never hurt you. He will never use you. He will only love you. He will only do good to you. He will only work all things together for your good and your glory. Don't you think he's earned your trust? Maybe you're not there yet, but can you at least put together Jackie's propositions there and sort of start to guide your heart down that road? If God can't sin, then he can't sin against me. If he can't sin against me, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? The holiness of God gives us the confidence to trust God, even when it's hard to trust him. Thirdly, God calls us to be a holy nation, a holy people. You see this language here, again, in verse 6 of this, verse 5, verse 6, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. Uh, we already heard that phrase, treasured possession. You know, the old King James translated that same phrase, a peculiar people, a different kind of people, 
Peter in his epistle in 1 Peter chapter 2 uses this same word. He's drawing from this same language when he says this. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Do you hear what the Bible is telling us? That when God's people gather together as a community, we're meant to be set apart from the world. That doesn't mean being intentionally weird or obnoxiously offensive. What that means is that they will know that you are Christ's followers because of love. Because of the way that you serve each other. Because of the way that you radically give up your possessions for one another. It's so marked out by generosity. The way that those people over there seem to drop everything to care for someone that's hurting. They seem to love the poor in radical ways, almost like it was always meant to be done. Uh, people that respect each other across difference, racially or across gender difference or otherwise. People that stand apart from the world, even as strangers and aliens, because they are holy in their love and holy in their obedience to God's word. What would it look like for us to be a holy people, as Bishop J.C. Ryle centuries ago wrote, living out a habit of hating what God hates and loving what God loves and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word? Do you know that the church is supposed to be like a little mini model of heaven? Oh, God help us. That almost, it almost feels embarrassing to say out loud. Right? Because it seems so far beyond our reach. But beloved, I see glimpses of it amongst you. The way that you encourage each other. The way that you cheer each other on. The way that you give sacrificially for each other. I see glimpses of it. How do we stoke those sparks into a bigger blaze? That we would so love and serve in a way that we truly would stand apart from the world as holy. A kingdom of priests, not only committed to God in worship like the priests used to do, but even in doing that for the world, serving our neighbors and bringing them into the presence of God, part of our commission and our calling as the people of God, bringing them into the presence of the mercy of God, showing them the way to the mediator, giving them little droplets, little glimpses of a God who loves the vulnerable, who seeks out people to carry on his wings. Will you together spread your wings and love those who are lost and lonely and needy all around us in our neighborhood? A holy people, this is our calling. As we more and more encounter a God whose holiness is not only majesty to us, but whose holiness becomes beautiful to us. Have you seen this God? Have you encountered him? Has his life begun to ooze out of your life? This is who we see today. God, a holy God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you.
You are the Holy One, the Righteous One. You're the one who gave up everything in your holy love to die for us. Forgive us. Make a way for us to be restored to your image, becoming all that you created us to be. Jesus, help us to see you for all you are, repenting of our sin, finding freedom in your love, serving and loving one another, serving our neighbors. Jesus, make us holy like you, but make it start with us seeing and encountering the holiness of our God. Oh Lord, thank you for your word. Change our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.